Hey, it's Jeff. A couple of things before we start the conversation. Conversation I, I really, really enjoyed. My new book, Humanifestations on Trauma Transformation, is now becoming available. We have copies here in Canada. People are interested. Ordering from, for example, Amazon.ca. In realment.com for signed copies. You can ship anywhere in the world. Um, Amazon, the US and India and the UK. Book should be in stock shortly and can, of course, be ordered into any bookstore or library near you as well. I'm excited about this book. It's like kind of a brother book to articulations, similar, thematically similar. And I just love it. It just, I just love the look of it, the feeling of it. And, and I feel really good about bringing it to you. I'm hopeful that, that almost anybody who gets a copy of this book will find at least one quote that will meaningfully serve them at this stage of their journey and, and going forward. Susan's next poetry healing course is coming up in June on soulshapinginstitute.com. Check that out if you're interested. And uh, I'm working on a couple of books and a couple of courses. I'm just wanting to finish the Enrollment Method audio course, which will also be available at soulshapinginstitute.com in September and then again next year. That's pretty much everything for now. Today, I had a conversation with, with an old friend. Um, a new friend and an old friend, I suppose. Uh, Shauna Quigley. Just read you her bio. Shauna is a therapist, TED speaker, author, and creator of The Clearing Method, a revolutionary psychotherapeutic body-centered method of therapy that guides you in uncovering and healing the source of your suffering. She has helped thousands of clients find and heal the root cause of their suffering and has trained hundreds of other practitioners to do the same. A passionate, tireless advocate of healing complex trauma, she is dedicated to changing the way that mental health is treated, educated, and trained. In a way, I think of her as somebody who, who blends the notion of mental health, that is, uh, the mind itself, with the notion of emotional health, that is, um, healing within the body itself. And does it in a very interesting and unique way, as you'll see in this conversation, she's working within the witness observer, but utilizing the witness in a way that's not designed to keep us hovering above our unresolved emotional material, which never works. As many of the sort of patriarchal spirituals do, they employ the witness, but as a, as a tool for coming in close to um, acknowledging, witnessing, finding, excavating the wounds themselves and where they're held within the physical and emotional body. And then engaging in a process where the witness is still in many ways activated um, to unwrap the material that protects the wounds, often had to protect the wounds, in order to actually get right inside of the wounds and move through the material to a place of resolution, nervous system regulation, sense-making, and readiness to move on to the next stage of your life with more space inside to inhabit your truest paths in this lifetime. Um, as we know, the material gets in the way. So she has crafted a very interesting process. And one of the other things that I really like about her process is that it really focuses on the work that we do, the sort of preliminary work that we do to prepare ourselves to come in close to this very hot, very energized, and very difficult material that's stored within our bodies. and. Quite often, somebody you know, will develop a model uh, to work within the wounds themselves, but really underestimates the importance 
of preparation uh, for that very profound work. And she doesn't. Shauna really, really has language for that and has written a book, and she'll talk a little bit about it in the conversation, that I think is, um, I think it's quite revolutionary in many ways, both the focus on the preparation, which I deeply believe in, and scaffolding, she has language for these things, and, and also the integration of the witness as part of an alchemical process of healing and transformation. Um, really cool stuff. So just to set the stage, bit of Trevor Hall's song, Arrows, Man of the Heart himself, and we'll start with Trevor, and then, um, and then listen, listen close to this, and see if it resonates with your experience terms of, I mean, so often I'll put up a post and people will say, you know, it'll be sort of an insight they relate to about the healing journey. And they'll say, but how? Shauna's got a how. I think it's really, really worth our while to, to listen in. This journey's got me bleeding a certain kind of feeling. so glad you're with me today. Um, I've been wanting to come back in on your clearing method. And I just really, you know, I want to share your story with the world, the, the development of the method, um, where the method's at, the book that you've just written that I know you're looking to bring into the world soon. And I'm excited about that. But if we could just start at the beginning, paint a picture of your context living in Ireland, in Derry of all places, and, and what started to emerge within you, within your own traumatic structure that was looking to help you to make sense of things. Just take us back to the beginning, if you could. Okay. So, as you mentioned, Derry. Derry is where I, where I was born. Derry is a little town in the middle of Northern Ireland, in the middle of what we understand is the trouble. And so there's, you know, there's fundamentally civil war. That's what the troubles was in, in Northern Ireland. I was born, I won't tell you when I was born, because then that gives away my age. But anyway, all right. Let's just say, you know, early 80s. I am a child growing up in the midst of madness, growing up with transgenerational trauma, growing up in the middle of what is just technically a war zone where there is very little hope. Very little room for actualization, very little room for very little room for to be available for the material within. You're just in survival mode. This is the modus operandi survival. Food on the table and shelter over you, and that is about as much as you can hope for or wish for. There was very, you know, at the time there's a lot of people, a lot of political leaders you're striving for a better future strike. But it, in my youth, that was that wasn't available in those early days. So that was the, that was the you know the the general understanding of of our times. And I grew up in that, and I grew up in a family that was ravished by alcoholism, that was ravished by trauma themselves. That where there was multiple deaths, multiple difficulties. You know, they talk about aces now, and they talk about you know this this checkbox system for assessing trauma. And I would have met all of the most of the, the that those checkboxes for sure. So that's the kind of context. That's the backstory. 
you know, I know you do an awful lot of work on, you know, Patrick virtuality. I know you do an awful lot of work on enlightenment, but this is the opposite of enlightenment. This is literally the the love and opposite. It's just mm. survival. And and in that survival, it's just the pathology of what is coming, you know, your difficulties. There's, there is no enlightenment. There is only religion. There is no spirituality as such. It's only just re- religious understandings and this pathology of, of, of our pain, the pathology of our. So that was that was how it was. And so when the pain arrives within me from all that you've seen, from all that you've witnessed, from all that you've been a part of, when that pain arrives within me and there has been no co-regulation because there's no one around me that knows anything about emotion or emotional world, such as the difficulty, when that pain arrives, when that pain visits, which would happen for me at 14 when I became available what was just a sea of pain the only thing to do in that moment is to think this is a this is an illness this is a pathology this is this is you know what the rest of my family had succumbed to you know and the only way out of this is you know death or alcoholism that was the level of of despair and that was the level of pain and then as we've talked about before in the, that moment is when this witness comes if you could just be a little be specific about where you are in the house, if you're in the house, yeah. when you begin to realize there's this sort of other consciousness inside of you that we're calling the witness, sort of the watcher that is interfacing with your habitual consciousness, trying to get you to see something or heal something or be aware of something. And just before you get into it, I just want to say I had, as you know, a similar experience at the age of 14 in European geography with Mr. Higgins. I remember this witness shows up and says, you know, this witness shows up and says, you know, you're not who you were before. What happened to you? And and it didn't feel like it was some entity separate from me. I knew it was within my own consciousness, but it was quite a startling and profound thing to have happened at, at that age when I was living in my own version of a war zone, my family itself. But so tell us just exactly how that happened for you and then what you had to do with it at that time. So as the pain arises within, and, and for all, for anybody who's listening to this, you know, we're familiar with the pain if we haven't been bypassing for years. We're familiar with how, with how this pain shows up. So this pain shows up. I'm 14, 15, around that age. I'm at home and I'm, I'm at a small single bed, uh, pitched against a wall, and this pain starts to show itself. And it's like a darkness. It's like a nothingness. It's like a, a deep understanding of what the world has to offer. Like there is nothing for you, it says. And so I'm so attached to that at 14. I don't know anything else other than listening to it and being aware of it. But as I'm in listening to that and aware, aware of it, I can understand that I'm listening to it and I'm aware of it. There's this consciousness that comes that, and it's like I am aware that I can feel it. I am aware that I can I, I can hear it in my mind. And it's that awareness that I, I become the watcher of the of what is happening in my body. I become the, the seer of what I what I hear in my mind. And I am aware that there's this dual process 
there's this understanding of what is happening. And then there is this understanding, there's, there's this experience, and there's this dual process. And that to me was given the context of pathologizing everything, such as our culture, that to me had to mean madness. It, it couldn't have been anything else for me. I had no context for it being anything helpful, no context for it being anything spiritual. Any, I, the context that I had coming from the culture was that this had to be had to be madness, had to be schizophrenia. This wasn't a part of who I was, or and that was petrifying. That created that that was you know. That was the most, in all of the trauma that I'd ever had, this was one of the most traumatic moments of my life. It's like you, you live in this frightening context, the farthest thing from anything you could call enlightenment. And then this, say, voice or awareness shows up trying to make sense of your experience as though it's separate from you. And because you don't know anything about healing, because there's no such thing as healing in this frightening world you live in, the only thing you can chalk it up to is insanity. There is no other reason for this. Mm -hmm. Same as there's no other reason for the pain in my body. Same as there's no other reason for these thoughts in my head that says mm -hmm. this word has nothing to show you, it has nothing to give you. This is all part of the madness. This is all part of the insanity. There is no other reason for any of it. But what was interesting was the awareness was just that. It was just this, and it still is to this day, it still is this just, oh, look at that kind of voice. Mm. Oh, look what, can you see what you're thinking? Can you see what you're feeling? It's kind of like this wise kind of elder that says, oh, just comments. It doesn't do anything, but just kind of is like, oh, there it is. There. The observer. The observer. Just that. Just beautiful. Kind of, it's a soft, gentle voice, but it's just the kind of a, hmm, I imagine that <laughs> in my Irish accent. I imagine that. Mm, that's interesting. Kind of like this interested observer that's just really inquisitive. The way that I like to talk about it now, it's like having a therapist <laughs> who's really inquisitive about what your internal process is. That's how that's how it develops. And, you know? and free. I mean, what more could you hope for? A free internal therapist. Um, free, no money, not. <laughs> what, what a concept. Um, so, so what did you do with it? And. When did it next arrive in your life? The trauma from that, as I said, you know, was was one of the one of the defining moments of my life, because there it set about an entire chain of events internally that broke my sense of self into a million pieces in that moment that hadn't already been done. That hadn't already whatever foundations of the previous trauma had there had been this. You know, it was just the kind of nail in the coffin to my sense of self, my belief in the world around me, my belief in the, in, in the place I had in the world. And the only safe place, which is where I think I really connect, even though I don't understand the world of spirituality, because I've never been in that world. But in that moment, just the need to be away from the pain, the need to be away from the witness, the innate need for safety. The innate need to hang on 
de the positivity. This perpetual place of positivity was the only place that I could exist in. Because anything outside that would have brought the witness. Because any, any pain brought the witness. So the job was to stay as close to goodness, kindness, love, happiness, contentment, that I, I stayed on that journey as close as I could and I batted away any variation. And then I became disconnected. I had this unity in my body. The only unity that I had was the unity for love and light and greatness. Right. And, and there's where the mindset stuff comes in. There's where that, you know, keep positive, you know, build goals, move. And I did that incredibly well for somebody who was very poorly educated as a child because trauma, as we understand, doesn't allow you to be educated. So I had very poor basic education. And in those hours and in those moments, I made up my mind that the only way out of this was to set goals towards education, to set goals towards a better life. And that became my that became my drive. But it was all in, in an effort to stay away from what to stay away from the pain with them. And that continued for about I'd say about ten years. Got it. So you did the perpetual positivity bypass. In order to survive the darkness and in order to stay away from a witness awareness, an observer awareness that you perceive to be a threat to your well-being. Got it. So when and how did the witness, the ever persistent witness, um, emerge? I had uh, I was married at about 24, 25 my still gorgeous husband and we had our first child I was about 25 so it was about 10 years later and the my emotional world this disunity that I had cultivated so brilliantly this this disunity away from anything other than than joy was absolutely annihilated mm. once this child was birthed so too was all of the emotion that had been locked in my body. Mm-hmm. And in, I, in realment, here comes in realment. Here it comes. Mm-hmm. And here is this child that deserves so much more than what I am capable of giving him in this moment. Because all I can give him is this idea of life, which is very kind of centered on one emotion, one, one state. And in that moment, I knew, I knew I wasn't bothered. I knew this, uh, this, and this eruption of material comes. So along, this is why the first chapter in the book is called Birthing. Because along with him birthed the material of the past. And it birthed with a violence. That's the only word that I have for it. A mental and emotional and somatic violence that I just was not prepared for. And then in that comes the witness. Here he comes again. Here, here, here he shows up. Here the wise one shows up. Just, you know, gently saying, oh, oh, look at that. Wow. <laughs> What's going on here? Mm. And so then what happened? What did you do? It sounds like you had reached a stage where you were either ready or had no choice but to try to make sense of your past experience. 
that that was the process you know i i went to therapy for a bit and that was helpful it was helpful and you know bringing me bringing me down a bit regulating me a bit enough to, to be in the material um and that was for a few a few weeks and then 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 the process started then the the turning on is what i call it. turning the turning on the self, the the becoming aware, using the witness to become aware of the emotional, somatic material that was in the body. And what I could see, the witness was just, I mean, this observer could see so much amazing detail. So not was it, not not only was I able to see the, my own material, but it was able to see a process, which was what the incredible thing was. For example, if there was an emotion in my body and the witness could see it, and I try to con- my, my own self try to contact that emotion, there was a pro- process that happened where I was pushed away, where I wasn't allowed, where there was resistance, where there was more pain, where there was a story, where there was a narrative. And what I could see very clearly is as I started to try and connect to the emotion in my body, as the witness was watching it and I tried to connect it, that there was what I know you understand as wrapping stories, narratives about if I touched this emotion, what would happen to me? If I went near this emotion, if, if, if I allowed it into my being, if I allowed myself an awareness of it, I could see that I was locked out of it because of what I know you understand is this process, this three layer process of, of what we call, what I call wrapping. And all of that wrapping comes from the lack of your cultural interjections. It comes from your, family's interjections on emotion it comes from your experience it comes from so every time I try to touch this emotion all I could hear was you're crazy you're mad you'll never survive you'll never come back you'll never be the same you know nobody else has it you're on your own you can't do this on your own this is the wrapping and what I could see and what the witness helped me to see is more I peel that back the diligent work of that the diligent work of calming the nervous system creating this creating these pockets of regulation in my body. And the more I undid these narratives, the closer I was getting to this, what I know you understand is primary pain. Primary pain. Mm-hmm. Primary pain. The rest was secondary pain. The rest was, was products of the pain itself, stories about the pain. So it seemed to be the process that I witnessed was this primary pain that was active. And what I was also able to witness was the mind's function. And I know you do great work around the mind's malaise and great work around the monkey mind. What I was able to witness was that this emotional content has a unique language. It has a unique voice. It is a story that it's trying to speak through the mind to educate us on why this emotion is here. It's linked to the pain in the body. It's linked to the stories that we've encountered. It's all interconnected. This witness was able to see the connection between these and these words in the mind, this language in the mind, this name calling in the mind, and it could see the could see the link between that and the power of the emotion in the body 
and how the two were interlinked and interwoven and how the body was just speaking through the mind. And the body was the emotional content from the from the difficulties, from the trauma, from the stories, from the interactions, from the experiences. And this was all a rare, very real and experienced by me. And this witness was watching the interaction with it all. It's just incredible. I'm thinking of the witness kind of like the surgeon when the surgeon first takes a look at the wound and whatever is surrounding the wound. Mm-hmm. And then you engage in a process with some, I guess, determination to create a safe space for the wound to unwrap. Yeah. If I'm understanding your language. And then you get closer to the bare bones experience of watching and seeing the wound and the originating material and feeling into the wound and the original experience that which had to be wrapped for you to survive. And so what happens when you get in close and closer to the wound? What then becomes the healing process? That was magical because. You know, there's an awful lot of work. I call that the scaffolding work and the, and the clearing method. We call that the, the, that's the pre-therapeutic work. That work has to be done to create capacity in the body and create because or, or otherwise it's too noisy. Otherwise, it's too difficult. Otherwise, it's too it's too disrupting, too unregulating. That's one of the biggest mistakes, I think, with our current system. We don't do enough of that pre-work anyway. But for me. Once that was done, once that I could see, as you say, that surgeons, I can see. And then I start to unravel, start to listen, start to trust that language that's coming, start to see its it, its reason for protecting this wound because it means it's madness. Start to challenge that, that wrapping unfolds. And then as you're in the wound itself, there is just this clarity. There is a beautiful clarity and it's painful. That's the paradox. It doesn't take away the pain, the somatic, emotional, deep, gut-wrenching pain that exists. But there's a clarity. What I could understand from that witness and from that experience and have seen in thousands of other people, by the way, so there's a universality to this, that once we're in that body of primary pain, there is a wisdom in that wound that is begging, literally begging to be heard. Mm-hmm. And as we start to as we start as, as we start to pay attention to that begging nature, as we start to be in the wound, what happens is is miraculous because what happens is is that the bridging into the mind happens. Now what does that mean? That means that if I ask someone or if I was ask myself, why do I feel this way? My mind will have lots and lots of answers. This is the mind's malaise. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's that reason. Oh, I remember this time. I remember that this time this happened. And for me, there was so much trauma. It could have been anything. And I would witness if I asked, the, if I asked my mind why I was feeling this way. The, I mean, the scramble, the information was much and many. This is the problem with mind-led therapy because there's so much information in the mind, so many memories. But when I was in the wound and was working with the wisdom of the wound, the wound could inform the mind. Now, when the wound informs the mind, it's very selective. 
It picks the memories. It goes to the memory that belongs to the wound. It doesn't scramble or look for it or suggest it. It works. So this was all an entire process that was happening within me, to me, by me. And this clearing, which is where the clear, this clearing of the debris emotional started to happen. So we're talking about, we're talking about emotional release. Now you'd start both as happening. The understanding of where it began, Mm -hmm. why it's Mm -hmm. there, Mm -hmm. because the wisdom in the body is so great. This wound was saying, nothingness is what life is. There is nothing in this world for you. So there's the wisdom of what they're saying. Why there is nothingness is 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 connected to the stories that I loved, connected to the trauma, connected to the people. The nothingness is is all and connected to my experience. So as I start to unravel and listen and answer that, this emotion starts to soften. And as this emotion starts to soften, so too does the roaring of it in the mind so the answer to the mind's malaise is in the body mm-hmm. but the, the trick or the, the key to it is getting there the and where, yeah and it's knowing how to get under the body safely mm-hmm. and I'm not just talking about nervous system safely we know that we understand the science of this mm-hmm. so that's a part of it but not all of it and that's important so that process kept happening and happening and happening and I told nobody, Jeff. Nobody. Not a being. I told nobody. And I didn't even understand what was happening. I just understood that I was becoming clearer and clearer and cleaner emotionally. And then, as you well know, this other voice of soul, of essence, starts to show up. Because <laughs> there's room now for that. This becoming starts to happen. Sorry, go ahead. Well, there's more space inside. Yeah, yeah. This starts to happen, and joy starts to arrive. And you know, in a TED talk, I I tell that story about joy coming from nothingness to joy. You know, mm-hmm. standing in the house making hot chocolate, nothing extraordinary. Beautiful. I mean, I understand this very well. It's like at first your experience of something called joy is sort of a false reactive narrative because there's just so much darkness. And then the witness shows up to freak you out and you're like, get me out of here. The only place I can live and survive, which often is true. The spiritual bypass can serve a perpetual positivity syndrome. All these things can serve a purpose. Um, as long as we don't let them linger any longer than we need them. And that's where it gets a little bit tricky in our world. But, and then you do the work. You do go deeper into the body, into the actual originating material, and then you start experiencing real joy. You're not reactive joy, not artificial joy, not nonsense. It's the kind of joy that brings you to your knees, that you yeah. can connect to with enlightenment, the kind of gratitude that is natural, that isn't forced by thought, that it comes mm-hmm. through the body. Yeah, brilliant. This kind of stuff that you have that you never understood, love for love's sake. You know, connection for connection's sake. This mm-hmm. mixed alongside the reality of every day. Mm-hmm. Not that you live in that place, 
mixed alongside the availability to your just general annoyance because you're annoyed for a day or some of the more deeper stuff that still is yet to be resolved. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the experience of all of it. Yeah. What I call uh, presence as a whole being experience. Yes. Um, yes. Fine, finally. I mean, I think, you know, apart from my own personal resonance with your story, because it, it was I had never heard another person talk about sort of the emergence of a, a witness in, in, in their adolescence. I mean, I had experienced that and I never talked to anybody, even in the therapeutic process about any of what was going on inside of me until I, I think I sat down to write soul shaping and finally began to put words to, and being a, a male may have had something to do with it too. I mean, I, I, and I just wasn't surrounded by anybody. Well, at least to my knowledge, they may have been doing the same thing that I was doing who had this kind of a activity going on internally around their emotional material. But what one of the things that really struck me about your story was that you know, so much of my work for a number of years was trying to sort of deconstruct what I came to call patriarchal spirituality and the new cage movement and ground spirituality. And one of the things that, that always threw me, I mean, I started the psychology of spirituality. I was a psychotherapy kind of guy. And most of which I just did inside of myself, like you did on my own terms. And, you know, I was like a lone wolf therapeutic warrior type of guy. Um, and what was interesting is then I come into contact with Rob Doss and, you know, Ritole and all these people. And they're talking about the witness, but they're talking about the witness, the watcher, the inner observer in a way that was felt very, uh, fragmented and superficial to me, even though they were presenting it as something very depthful and extraordinary and enlightening and awakening and all the rest of that. I didn't believe them because they seem to be utilizing the witness not to find their way into the unresolved pain that was waiting to emerge. Find their way out of it. Yeah. To to find their way out of it and to sort of obsess over this thing called the mind or the monkey mind. And so to get inside of a witnessing or a meditative consciousness for often hours a day and pull away from the world in an effort to pull away from their unresolved emotional material. Um, and to stay inside of the witness, watching the mind, taming the mind through becoming aware of the mind. And so it was seemed like a very cerebral usage of the witness in order to allegedly dissipate the cerebral nature of their functioning. Yes. And, and little wonder, for most of them, there was a complete split between their seeming enlightenment and the fucked upness of every other part of their lives. And, and whereas I was using the witness really as a observer of unresolved material and as then uh, making me aware of what then needed to happen inside of me, in order yeah. to come into a more emotionally integrated place. So integrated place, yeah. Right. So I I you know, I called it the monkey heart because I felt like, well, the monkey mind was sort of seemed symptomatic to me. It was like when I calmed my emotional body, when I cleared my emotional body, when I had a good cry or did a good breath work or did a good bioenergetic session or whatever I did, my mind calmed down. And I was like, okay, so I'm not so I mean Saying there's a monkey mind is not really, doesn't take a genius to figure that out in this world. But the purpose it serves and the way to calm it is the more important question. So I had to go down to go up. And, and then I didn't need to do so much work up top because up top was feeling pretty good um, and was thinking pretty good. I mean, I had more clarity of thought, but I had clarity of feeling. So 
And I felt like when you first told me your story, I was really blown away. And I still am blown away by it because you also utilize this thing called the witness observer for the purposes of healing, becoming aware of, and ultimately healing the emotional body. And, and then allowing the witness to then go quiet again because, or to, to become an obviously uh, acknowledged as a benevolent force in our lives. Like, I don't really experience my, as long as when I'm moving from a more integrated place, um, which is not always true, of course, but when I am, you know, the witness doesn't really need to say much because I'm, I'm aligned and I'm, yeah. I'm moving when you're from in yeah, right. when you're in flow, when you're in connection, when you're in those lovely spaces. Right. But then whenever you get on the, you know, whenever there's material moving through you, whenever there's something coming up for you, then it's helpful then. But it's not a constant. It doesn't have to be. Well, it's certainly not for me now. But. Yeah, I, I, think of, I think of the witness um, as, a, as a soul friend who shows up to tell this old soul or young soul, or depending on how you look at me. But when there's work to be done to get back into alignment. And then the, then the witness lies down in the hammock and goes to sleep. So long as I paid attention. So then you, so in terms of your story, so then you eventually start working therapeutically with people and you develop. What I do do is that I still don't tell anybody. Mm -hmm. I just, from the outside world, I'm in process. My husband, I didn't even tell him. I'm married to this man, I have children to this man, and as far as he understands, I'm in process. So I'm in process, but I understand that that I want to help people. I still am not sure what happened. I still haven't got a name for witness. I still haven't got an understanding of that. And what I decide to do is that I decide to go and train as a psychotherapist because I couldn't, I couldn't, and, and there's part of my, the, our Irish culture, I couldn't just, you know, show up and say, here, I've healed myself, let me heal you. That, that's not how we play the game here, right? Mm-hmm. I knew that I had to get qualifications. I had done a degree in business, and I, I knew I needed to get qualifications in psychotherapy. Even through my psychotherapeutic degree or master's, I didn't tell anybody what I knew, but as I was learning, I was thinking, yeah, that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not the reality of it. So I was there was always this fight against what the psychotherapeutic world was teaching because I knew something different. But I still wasn't willing to give that over. I still wasn't willing to speak about it. I still hadn't integrated the experience of it well enough. And it wasn't until I met you. It wasn't until you started the, you explained or said the witness consciousness. I remember this conversation sticks out in my head. And I remember saying, what does that mean? Explain that to me. That's what that voice was. That's what that, that's what that, oh, what's happening here was. When you started to give me a, a frame of reference for it, then I started to understand it and deepen into it and then um, open up. And the model was just, the model came from my experience. And as I said, there was two parts of it. There was the healing of me, but then there was the process of healing because there's an absolute process to it. And so the model came then after that, the steps and stages of the model. And then after that, then sitting down with people and as a psychotherapist, I I studied uh, person-centered psychotherapy. So the, that was the perfect vehicle because there was no uh, interventions. Person-centered psychotherapy is 
non-pathological, not no interventions, just a witnessing. So I trained in the witness, the witness model fundamentally, who knew? And what I could start to see was this universality of process that happens in people. And, and I had documented my journey. Unbeknownst to myself, I had been taking notes and as I was processing them. So that all came together in the form of this, this model. But the model was never, I never woke up and said, I'm going to deliver a model. The model was delivered through my experience. Got it. Yeah, I mean, what I, I like the feeling that it's, which has been my experience, the head, the head trippy, patriarchal, spiritual lens on the witness, there's a certain passivity to the witness. And I think what we're talking about is, you know, the energized witness, the agenda witness. There's, there's actually, it's not actually neutral. I mean, I named my witness observer essentially Little Missy. And I wrote a lot about that in Soul Shaping because this was like something that came in with me that had the capacity for objectivity. Absolutely. Yes. But it also had a, like a, a desire for me to become yes. something. Yes. Or to heal something or move in a part to what I call sacred purpose to find a certain directionality in my life. And if I was stuck, not that we're ever done all of our work, but if I was stuck, really lodged inside of some big boulders of unresolved material, the witness seemed to be aware that I was never going to get where I could go in this lifetime. So it yes, was like a prompter, like, like a prompter, like a prompter in a way. The way that I would have looked at it was. It was an observer. It was that, hmm, now this is interesting. But it was also, so, you know, in the interestedness, it was also the actualizing tendency. It's also, so, you know, what do we do here now? So, like, you know, it was also kind of inquisitive in order to move forward. It was all like it was two things. But the drive in me to heal the, the drive in me, not only just in the inquiry, sit above it and watch it and understand it, but actually go under the heart of it and alchemize it. Mm. That was part of the witness. That, that alchemy, that mm. invite to alchemize it was also part of that experience for me. Got it. So the holder of the truth and also the alchemizer or the, the catalyst Yes. On some level for the alchemizing process and integration process. Right. So we're, we are talking about, I mean, we spent a lot of time on this, but we are talking about a much more activated view of the witness than at least I was exposed to when dialoguing with people who were really part of what I call the spiritual bypass world. That the witness was like almost like the bypass is like the idea that there's something completely objective which they can then call the absolute self, you yes. know, or <laughs> self-realization while completely desecrating the reality of the self-story, ego, body, and everything. Here's the problem with that. The problem with that is this, that yes, I can be in witness and not an alchemy. I can be in witness to the pain and not an alchemy, which is what they profess, which is fine. But we are of the human condition. So that pain that is within will puppeteer that behavior it'll puppeteer that mind it'll puppeteer it will direct the organism in ways 
that if we just stay in conscious awareness of and not in alchemy of, that we have no control over how we're puppeteered. And so then we end up with these shitty lives and this understanding and neither shall the two meet, which is just ridiculous because they think that you can observe something, understand it, and for it not to puppeteer you is not to understand the human condition. It's not to understand how the mind and body are integrated. It's not how do you, it's how you don't understand the interplay between the two. It's how you don't understand the, the, the interplay between the mind's functions and your behaviors because they are puppeteered from your primary pain. So to watch your primary pain and not to be an alchemy of it is to be a puppet to it still. Because so. that because your story is alive. Because it's alive. And, and, and you can't and you can't get the story. You I mean you can certainly try. We all most of ah, us do. Yeah, no, you know, maybe uh, maybe the awareness of the pain and the disconnection from the story of the pain and the disconnect, maybe it gives you a pocket of regulation. Which is fine, and I understand that. But the alchemy is one step, is the next step of it. Why not take the next step if you can tolerate it, give the support for it? Which I know there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of factors in that. Don't get me wrong, I don't think it's for everybody either. And some people are dealing with a lot of primary pain. You know, it's not just one or two pieces of this stuff it's, yeah. and they're multi-layered and multi-connected. So let's not just simplify primary pain as, as such. Let's understand the complexities of the human condition and, and our human experiences. But if you think that you can be on awareness of something and understanding of it and be disconnected from how it, would, how it moves you through the world, how it moves you in relationship is ridiculous. Well, it's just stupid. I mean, it, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it's one thing to consciously armor or consciously dissociate because there are times when, depending on your context, your sociological context, your economic context, your relational context, where it would be deadly dangerous for you to unpack that material or unwrap, in your words, that material, of course. But we want to reach a stage where the dissociation or the detachment or the disconnect is, is not celebrated, you know, in a, like in a Buddhistic way. I mean, to me, the Buddha was the great bypasser of all time and I, I don't pay too much attention to whatever came through the buddha because i think that the buddha confused uh, necessary um disconnect from you know created a whole philosophy that that it elevates disconnect as though it's somehow the most we can hope for in this life and it's i understand your certain circumstances and maybe he was in those circumstances that was necessary but it's hardly the end of the story detachment is a tool it's not a life and i think you know i i think what's ironic for me is so much of the so-called non-duality world or advaita world i call it the avoider movement they talk about something called the unity consciousness so they aspire for that and yet they've completely dissociated from and dismiss and desacralize the emotional body, the story, the ego, the body itself, your personal identifications, as though they're not fundamental to what it is to be in a unique consciousness. And so that's what we're talking about. It's good work if you can get it. But as I have experienced, I made a film about some of these people, the story they tell. So it's funny that they bash the story, but they always have a story to tell about their great moment of awakening that has forever lived on for all eternity. They would be Brahman floating around in the skies, attending to the world below them and all the rest of this bullshit. The, the, the reality is their story is, and I know many of them, is more alive in a 
unhealthy and destructive way than the story of the people who actually dropped out into the body and do some work with the material. You can only turn your story around for so long before you have completely dismembered your consciousness and can't find your way back home. And, so, and, and, in, that, and in that oneness, oneness is found in, at the heart of who you're, where your essence is and who you are, and you can't reach that until there's enough space you know, there's room for we, we say there's room for it all. You can't. It's it's in the alchemy of the pain that we can arrive at that place too. I, I understand that they think you can arrive at that place from just being separate from the pain, but it's in the alchemy of the pain mm-hmm. that you can arrive at those place is not that place because to be human mm-hmm. is not to arrive at any place, but is to be in all the places. And to be available for it all. And that's very, very different. Because if you're trying to be in that place, you're chasing something that you cannot have. It doesn't even exist. Yeah, because we we are a part of a member of this species. And there yes. are certain things that are fundamental to the species. I mean, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge. And now that I've said most of what I had to say and written most of what I wanted to say about you know, a grounded spirituality. I, I think it, it is important to acknowledge for all kinds of systemic reasons why, and personal reasons, of course, why people choose to seek answers or comfort or something that feels like but ultimately isn't resolution in all kinds of other places that have nothing to do with coming in close and unwrapping those wounds. And it's important to not desacralize that or I mean, these are, you know, humans are very brilliantly adaptive and they do what they have to do to survive. And, and I did it. I did it. I did it. Sure. For and you had to do it. And you had yeah. to do it. I wouldn't have survived it. I would have died under the weight of, of what I could only 10 years, 15 years later process. Yeah. So it's not, it's not, it's not the dehumanize that for as a process. Because right. that too is the human. It is the human way. It is the human condition. To try our best to stay in in some level of survival. Yeah. But there is another way, and that way is beyond. And not everybody will want that way. You know, that's another thing that important to say. It's. I'm not saying that the clear method is the only way to be in the body of your material. But what I am saying, it is a way an integrative way that allows access to the wounds within that that maybe you have tried for a long time and haven't been able to because there's an entire process to it. And that's what I teach. I teach therapists that now, which is just amazing. To, you know, it's amazing to see other people doing great work out there on behalf of this model that has been born. But again, it's not, you know, it's an invite. We have to invite ourselves under our bodies. We have to invite ourselves under, and it has to be a very it can't it can't be a, an egotistical kind of this. You know, for me, this can't come from an egotistical point of view. I've developed this model through my witness card because then you're just the same as everybody else. Mm. Then you're just the same as all of that all of that egoic nonsense that's mm. about being better than everybody else. Because I have this witness consciousness, and this model is born. It just born born. It was born through this experience. It's a gift. It has transformed loads of people's lives. For some people, it may not be the answer. For some people, they may need to stay armored. They may need to stay. And isn't that all right? Isn't that part of what it is to be human for us to decide what we need to do? But I'm with you, Jeff. I don't like 
the idea that we sell in enlightenment or the idea that we sell in mindset that these are the ways and that you don't come outside these ways. You have to stay true to these principles and there's nothing else. And there's this middle ground of integration. Well, I mean, it's fine if your ultimate goal in life is to be an automaton. And uh, they've you just got to pick up any one of a number of those old style, old style books, and you can find the path to automatism that masquerades as a path to enlightenment. They're everywhere. There, you go hide in the meditation cave and remove all of your triggers from the human field and, and meditate on you know the realization of humanity or whatever bullshit story you're telling yourself. And even though nothing absolutely changes in the world itself because of your cave-like behavior. And you can have... And then, rest- and then, and then where's the person? Where's the, because you and I... Well, there's no person. The whole point there, is yeah. there's no person. I mean, they, yeah. and, they, they're, and then they're, where's the purpose? <laughs> it's, the, it's the elevation of of the depersonalizing nature of their process. And then, and then I don't get to have good... Like, I don't get to have good crack with you if you're an automaton. I don't get to... I don't get to, you know, have conversations where we spend half our life laughing or tagging and tailing through stories. It's, it's yeah, absolutely... It's so interesting you say this because when I was starting to do yoga in Toronto years ago at a place called Outward Dog, which is a wonder, was a wonderful yoga, uh, yoga studio, I was in the back with a buddy and we were laughing. Um, and we kept laughing. We were just having fun. And the <laughs> teacher who, uh, you know, I remember him as being a pretty wild guy. So I think he was really using the shtanga and the practice and the discipline to help bring him into balance. And that's fine. But he, he walked, he kept sort of glaring at us and he was, he was intense. And he, he came to the back and he looked at us. He says, there's no laughing yoga. Okay. And I understood. I understood what he meant. He meant that we are striving for a kind of equanimity, which is not particularly human. We are striving for a kind of equanimity here by disciplining the body, by disciplining the toxic body beast. That's the essential. If you look at the origins of yoga, it's really primarily a spiritual bypass practice. It doesn't have to be. You can use it as an emotional release and excavation tool, but that's not what the idea was. And so he said, there's no laughing in yoga. And and I was like, it was one of the most important teachings on my road to understanding the distinction between a grounded and an ungrounded spirituality. The other thing that was helpful to me, which relates to something you just shared a few minutes ago, and I want to make a distinction. I think you're acknowledging that you've gone to the school of hard knocks and crafted a, a model that's helpful for some people. And you're stating that loudly. Um, is a very healthy expression of the healthy ego. I think if it makes you into a narcissistic character wandering around thinking you're all that, and of course you then stop healing, growing, and doing the rest of it, that's the unhealthy ego. And I think it's important to just not throw the whole ego out with the bathwater because I don't think we could have this conversation if some part of us didn't have a healthy ego and a healthy self-concept. You know, we just got to be careful we don't slip to over to the to we don't we, we have to be careful that we don't think that we're supreme in that i'm yeah. supreme in this witness consciousness i'm supreme in this model i'm supreme i'm better i'm more i'm that's not not the game at all it's just an offering that has come through me that is mine that i want to give away that i want to but it's not a there's doesn't i am no different no better no more no less and it's not that and that's what i mean by the egoic self sense of self yeah it's not oh yeah it's yeah, you're talking about the unhealthy ego. Um, the unhealthy, yeah. Right, not right, right. So what's the point? That's not healing, as you say. So, yeah. So, 
So I shouldn't get a tattoo with the word Supremo emblazoned on my forehead? No. <laughs> Please don't do that. Oh, just for a, a day. Your just arm. like a, for a day. <laughs> Full sleeve with it wrote from top to bottom. I think I'll get like Supremo on one arm and on the other it'll say, I'm not. I so am. Supremo, no. I'm not. No. I am. I know it's the big I am. I am a Supremo. Oh, <laughs> oh um, dear. wonderful. So just to close up, you've written a book that yeah. captures this story. What What's the name of the book again? Healing at Last. It, it's really interesting. The book, and we're talking about ego, the book doesn't necessarily capture the essence of the story. It captures the essence of the process within the story. So the book details chapter by chapter, the process of healing that I underwent and that I, that the model entails um, and that we, that I teach other therapists. So the book um, is a, a book written for someone who is trying to heal and has been trying, whether they have been trying in the kind of pathology way and the identification of, of illness or whether they have been in the spiritual world mm-hmm. and they now you are ready for alchemizing. And that maybe they've been trapped for a long time, not understanding how to heal. The book is the book is for or for that reader who's ready, who's ready to maybe alchemize and integrate this this material in their body and the Great. steps, stages that that, that 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 takes you through. And the stage you're at with the book, I understand, is that you've pretty much completed it. Um, yeah. You have a proposal. And now you're looking for a publisher or deciding what route to take to bring the yes. book to the world. Great. That, Great. Probably, yeah. So we have something to look forward to. Any, any last thoughts? Just the only last thought is that I am thankful for you and your, your menacing uh, essence uh, in my life. <laughs> and thankful for these opportunities. They talk about the things that matter and the things that help the the real human condition. Great. Yeah, we, we have to we have to keep talking. We know where silence leads us. Um, so thank you for your bravery, for choosing to rebrave your consciousness after being unbraved by life circumstances, and for having the audacity to bring your what you learned from your own lived experience to a certainly starving world. I'm grateful. Thank you. Grateful to you too. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Stop.